Welcome to the Finding Humanity podcast. In this podcast, we'll be taking you to the heart of the most complex issues facing our world today. At the core of each episode is a real-life story of courage and purpose, a human voice that we hope will inspire you to learn more about a global issue. To help unpack these topics that are often complex and overwhelming, you'll also hear from leading experts and humanitarians. Finding Humanity was created through a partnership between the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. Our inaugural season is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. Thank you for being here. Now let's get into the show. How is it that if they kill my people, it is wrong, and if I kill their people, it's right? I think what is wrong is wrong and what is right is right. Let me use the opportunity I have now. Maybe use that as a platform to transform my trauma, my pain, my suffering into an opportunity for something new, something that I never lived, but something that I dreamt about, which was peace. I first met Victor in 2014. I was working at the United Nations on advancing the UN's efforts on youth peace and security. He had a calm, reassuring sense about him. A few years later, I invited him to participate in the opening ceremony of the UN World Humanitarian Summit. What needs exist in the community that should be supported by the development agenda? The way he conversed and passionately advocated for youth inclusion was impressive. He seemed unflappable, like his troubles, if any, were far behind him. My brother was abducted in 2003. On the 10th of December, which is International Human Rights Day, he has not come back up to now. So he's among many tens of thousands of children from northern Uganda who have taken by the rebels and they have never come back. We don't know where he is. He's, uh, he's probably dead or alive. But as a family, we do believe that we will see him one day. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hizami Bermada. I'm a human rights activist and social innovator, and I'm the proud daughter of a Palestinian refugee. My family migrated to the United States from my beautiful home country, Syria. With years spent working at the United Nations, countless hours advancing social justice causes all over the world, and through the travesties that I have witnessed through my own journey, I have come to know the power of the human spirit. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action on issues that you care about in your own community, and together to help create a better world. I think the most important thing in the family of many siblings is you know that you're not alone. Victor had nine siblings. He's child number eight. I don't complain about how many children somebody can produce because if my parents stopped at five, three, two, I wouldn't be here. Early in life, Victor had been exposed to generosity. It was, in fact, the philosophy in the Ochen household. Victor and his family lived in a village called Abia in northern Uganda. Sharing was part of our life. 
you share where you sleep, you share the bed seats, the chair, the clothing sometimes, food, water and everything. So sharing was part of our life. Sometimes I would ask my mom, said, how come in this village, our homes will get more visitors than any other villages, any other homes in the village? And my mom would say, you know, if your home is good, people will always want to come to your home. But if you don't see visitors coming to your home, you should know that something's wrong about your home. Uganda is a landlocked country in East Africa with a current population of 44 million. British colonization of Uganda began around 1860. Uganda gained its independence over 100 years later in 1962. After independence, Uganda was plagued with conflicts, most of which were rooted in problems caused by colonialism that resulted in political turmoil. Like many African nations, Uganda endured a series of civil wars and coup d'etats. In this episode, we focus on the political turmoil and the war that took place during the period of Victor's life. My childhood taught me so much how to look for the best in every human. But also at the end of the day, I learned my discipline, my passion, my determination to care for life because I lived in a community where life was a privilege to live a life for one day. Victor was born in 1981, a year after the start of the Ugandan Civil War that lasted until 1986. This bloody civil war was fought between the Ugandan government and its armed wing, the Uganda National Liberation Army, against a number of rebel groups. Victor says that at times it became unclear who was fighting who and who you needed to protect yourself from. When Victor was six years old, he was forcibly removed from his home when the violence in his hometown escalated and his native city turned into a battleground. Uganda has had quite a violent history. That's Christoph Titeka, a senior lecturer at the University of Antwerp in Belgium. His work focuses on Central Africa, particularly Congo and northern Uganda, where he's been conducting field research for the last 16 years. So after it became independent, basically every change in power, every change in government happened through violence. When the current regime of President Museveni came into power in 1986, this also happened through a coup d'etat. When this happened, the population of northern Uganda feared for genocide. President Museveni has been in power for over 30 years. Due to political turmoil arising from a series of coups, presidents had the history of killing ethnic groups loyal to previous presidents. For context, a coup is defined as an illegal and violent overthrow of an existing government by a small group. When Museveni took power, there was a fear that his rule would continue with genocide and further divide Uganda. So rebel groups were organized. That's what population did to protect itself from violence. So that's how rebel groups emerged. There were many rebel groups, but the ones most widely known were the Uganda's People's Defense Army and the Holy Spirit Movement, led by priestess and spirit medium Alice Lequena. But traditional rebellions failed. And this is where the Lord's Assistance Army of Joseph Kony came in. Joseph Kony is believed to be Alice Lequena's cousin, which, as I mentioned earlier, was the founder of the rebel group, the Holy Spirit Movement. Joseph took over and formed the Lord's Resistance Army, or the LRA. The LRA's goal was to overthrow President Museveni and create a state based on Kony's interpretation of the Biblical Ten Commandments. Joseph Kony 
claimed to be possessed by a range of spirits and those spirits had directed him to save the population of northern Uganda from genocide. The rebellion took place for a political purpose, in theory to protect the population of northern Uganda, but along those religious lines. However, quickly the LRA of Joseph Kony turned itself against the civilian population. So in other words, instead of protecting the population, it started attacking the civilian population. And this meant abducting both children and adults on a large scale. The LRA committed brutal crimes not only in Uganda, but in other neighboring countries like South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Victor witnessed all of this, the horrors and injustices of war, including all the killings, rape, and the breakdown in social infrastructure. I remember my mom, every night she could stand by all the road path leading to our homes. She could stand and pray, even if it's raining, she would stand and pray so that we could be protected. But also she tell us that when you go to bed, you must pray. And what was our prayer? Our prayer was, God, as I go to sleep, I pray that if I don't wake up or something happens and I don't wake up alive, you take my soul. This was the kind of prayer that you pray as children because you are not so sure if going to sleep in the house, you'll wake up alive or you'd be not abducted or something like that. So it was a very desperate situation. For years, Victor would move in and out of different refugee camps. To protect their family, they would travel to neighboring villages where the fighting and violence weren't as intense. Um, how did your mom, in essence, stop you all as a nucleus, as a family, of really being influenced by violence in these forces? Was that something that she worked with you all to choose, for example, the path of peace versus one of joining in the conflict on either side? I, I think I remember one particular scenario when my mother was wondering who manufactured the guns. And she was wondering because guns have killed too many. And guns will finish people. Who made guns? It was so easy to kill. It was so easy to take life of innocent children. Your enemy, you disagree. People just get killed. People are being ambushed. People are being shot everywhere. And that was the beginning of the moment I saw that my mother was going through a very difficult moment because she was losing people. And I, as a child, the worst was when we reached a point where guns was the only solution. If you want to be safe at home, feel the sense of security, you must own it, you must have it. But when we had a discussion over and over again, our mother kept on telling us that war was never the solution to anything. Picking up the guns or deciding to go and fight was just an escalation to already bad situation. Victor remembers how kids like him would find ingenious ways to play, in spite of the violence happening around them. Even if you're in war as a child, you still want to play. Play is a very important part of growth. Victor and his friends made their own football from whatever materials they could find. We were kicking ball, we made our own ball. And then one of the elders came and checked on the ball and said, kids, what are you kicking? He said, we made our own ball because there was no single football in that community. The elder picked up the ball and examined it. It wasn't a ball that they'd been kicking around. It was a bomb. And it would have killed Victor and his friends instantly had it exploded. 
many of the kids around Victor were forced to become child soldiers. But most of the young people were joining not because they wanted only guns, but they were joining because they also wanted military uniform to wear. Because there were no clothes. We didn't have clothing. So it was sometimes the military uniform was a motivation for children to join armed forces. I am going through pain, but I think I am still lucky that I'm not going through this kind of horrors. The worst was to see the kids who are forced to kill their own parents. They abduct you, they force you to kill your mother, your dad, and then they take you. Victor knew he was going to lose his friends. He also knew that picking up a gun would be his only chance to survive the war. But the choice he made at that point, when he was only 13 years old, was sort of inconceivable. I started pushing these kids, said, no, don't go. Some listened to me, said, I'm maybe stopping them, I'm giving them bad luck. But some insisted and went. Trained for a few hours, deployed to fight. They are caught, and their hands cut off, all their weapons taken, and that was it. So that kind of gave me the feeling that my move to start that peace sitting under that tree was a good move. I turned it into a peace club. I decided to do something that was very unusual. I chose peace when it was so unpopular and everybody thought I was betraying them. I was talking about something that I've never lived, something that I've never experienced. I don't understand what peace looked like and I'm here promoting peace. They called Victor a coward. Why are you being a woman? That was the concept that women are always not fighters. That's the misunderstanding which people had a gender stereotype in our community that women are not fighters. That's why a lot of men, because they want to demonstrate their masculinity, ended up you know, exposing themselves and ended up dying. When Victor's mom found out that he was stopping kids from joining rebel forces, she was proud of him. But at the same time, she was worried for his safety. My mom said, you're doing good stuff, but it's very risky, you know that. And I told my mom, say, just like you have always asked who made the gun, I have made a decision that I will never learn how to shoot a gun. And that was a commitment I made to my mom when I was 13 years old, said, for my entire life, never will I have any reasons to learn to shoot a gun, to pick up a gun, to fire at anybody, no matter what. I'll never do that. The war in Uganda devastated the civilian population. LRA military campaigns and the government's armed response displaced an estimated 1.6 million people. It was a stain against humanity for 25 years. That's Sasha Lesnev. He's a human rights activist based in Washington, D.C. He lived in Uganda for almost three years. Sasha founded a nonprofit called the Grassroots Reconciliation Group, an organization which helps integrate former child soldiers back into their communities. 90% of the population was forcibly displaced from their homes at one point. That was over 1.4 million people in internal displacement camps with very, very poor conditions. Tens of thousands of people were killed or raped, and some 25 to 35,000 children and youth were abducted as child soldiers or porters or sex slaves. One of the victims who went missing was Victor's older brother, Omar. He was a very, very religious man. Baba home at a camp of 70,000 people, staying in one square kilometer space of land. He was the only senior religious personnel in the camp. But also in the camp, people lost everything. People lost homes, properties. Many people lost children, their relatives. But I think people had faith in the future. My brother was so prayerful. When he comes and pray with everybody, people feel some sense of security, 
some sense of hope, and he would always lead this. It happened one day when his brother went out to pray. Victor went with him. And I left him a few minutes before anything happened. And I went like one kilometer from home, hoping that he was going to follow me on a bike because I was walking with another young man and taking some kettles. And we entered the ambush. A rebel chased Victor and the young man he was walking with. For almost 400 meters, threatening to shoot us. And I told the guy that as long as the bullet does not eat us, let us keep running. So we took off. And then there was a woman who was following us, saw us being chased. She ran back home and said, I saw those two kids. They already abducted. When my brother heard this, was panicking. But now my biggest fear was my brother, who didn't know what happened to us, was going to enter the same ambush. There was no telephone. There was no another road. I wanted to talk to him, but there was no means to cross the bridge to communicate, there was no means. And he wanted also to talk to me to find if I was already taken or what. All of a sudden, a valley filled with rebels separated Victor and his brother. So we're all crying on both sides. And I continued moving. At night, they came and took him together with my cousin and other family members. Victor's brother has now been missing for over 16 years. I questioned if really my choice was the right choice to not do anything. But I said my choice to promote peace, even though there's no peace, was right. But it comes two years, three years, four years, five years, you start questioning who is behind the war. How comes the government cannot bring an end to that kind of war? And going for 10 years plus, you find that you are not only destroyed as a family, but you are structurally destroyed. All your basic rights, social security is gone. No education, no health, no housing, no food security, no income. You have no hope. So this kind of failing is what leads to radicalization. I went through that moment. But it was that moment when my brother went that I said, now what? It's gone. I can't get him back. Victor and thousands of others became refugees in their own country. They are called internally displaced people, or IDPs. IDPs have not crossed a border to find safety, and unlike refugees, they are on the run at home. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR, IDPs stay within their own country and remain under the protection of its government, even if that government was the reason for their displacement. People like Victor were ordered to stay in government camps that were nearly unlivable, where malnutrition, crime, and disease were prevalent. But when word of the Ugandan crisis hit Western media, international organizations, including the UN, coordinated food donations and relief efforts in Uganda. So the World Food Program was distributing foods and water. That's Christoph again. This was a fine balance. It was just enough to survive, but it was not enough to prevent these major harmful effects of the camps. So when these camps were established in 96, this was extremely badly prepared by the governments. People, they arrived in particular areas, but there was no sanitation, there was no food aid and so on. So quickly, humanitarian assistance stepped in, but it didn't help to prevent these major negative effects, both in terms of health, but also in terms of security. Because of the war, Victor had to survive on one meal a day, or none at times. UN started sending in food aid. Though there would be trucks coming in to bring food, and people queue up for like four hours to get food. The first day I went and I saw people queued, got food. Others got 
double shares, triple shares, because they had the energy, the strength to get it. But the people who did not get food were the child-aided families, children who lost both parents due to war. Some of them were aided by a young person as old as 10 years. They couldn't get food because they were not strong enough to stand in the queue of people who were strong. The sick, people were wounded, the adults were amputated, the old ones, they couldn't get food. When I saw that the first day, I went back home, not thinking about their food, but thinking about these people who did not get, what are they going to eat? Victor stood in line to get food for people who were too weak to get it on their own. He did it several times a day. Eventually, the food distributors thought that he was stealing food from other people. The food distributors from the World Food looked at me and said, who is this guy and what does he want? What is he up to? So when they asked the people, are you paying him? Are you taking anything from him? No, he's just doing it for us. We don't even know why he's doing it for us. So they asked me, why do you do it? I said, because you guys are so committed to distributing food that you just want to give to anybody whose hand can reach you. And you're not looking at people whose hand cannot reach you because they are pushed away. They're blocked. They're too sick to be here. I'm helping them. They looked and said, what are you eating? I said, I come here, I go back. I don't get anything. But now, my passion, my feeling, my commitment towards uh, the sick and the weak was getting stronger and stronger. I think I built more desire to help them. I started thinking, maybe I should form an organization. I should renew my Peace Academy. I didn't have money, didn't have much knowledge. I didn't get my degree. Because of his urge to feed those who couldn't feed themselves and to provide healing to those who'd been tormented by decades of conflict, in 2005, Victor started his own nonprofit organization. I started forming, scribbling this document for African Youth Initiative Network. Let me form an organization so that I can get support, then I can help people. I wanted to talk about peace because I felt, how long are we going to treat the war wounds without preventing the war injuries? And I formed the organization, primarily to help me mobilize youth and community in talking about peace and justice. So I formed the African Youth Initiative Network. I registered it with the government, and then I started moving with a certificate to big donors, NGOs, UN, and every other person who were there. Ask them, can you give us $100, $50, whatever donation you can give towards our initiative. We want to go and talk about peace, we want to talk about people suffering in the community, they would tell me, young man, you are too ambitious. You don't know much and you want to run your own organization. If you want job, go and jump in that truck, go and distribute food, we shall pay you. And I said, I don't want job. I want to talk about peace. Having survived much more than rejection, Victor was not about to give up on his dream to bring peace to his community. Many young people decided to found initiatives and organizations that could help their communities. That's Sasha Lesnev again. There was a whole spate of different organizations who got on radio shows, who set up support networks for former child soldiers, who were instrumental in training former child soldiers in, you know, how to better have better skills in terms of, you know, setting up jobs and economic opportunities for themselves, but also how to reintegrate better. After two decades of conflict, peace talks commenced between the Ugandan government and the LRA. In July 2005, the International Criminal Court issued warrants for Joseph Kony and four other senior Lord's Resistance Army commanders. 
They were charged with war crimes and crimes against humanity in northern Uganda. To date, Joseph Kony still remains at large. Ordinary civilians like Victor started grassroots efforts to rebuild their lives and their country. And through the African Youth Initiative Network, Victor has helped treat 21,000 victims of mutilation and provided trauma support to over 100,000 victims of war. Some of them have lips, nose, ears cut off. And above all, we don't only work with victims as victims. We see how can we transform them from passive victims into active survivors who are taking part in the society. When we started now doing what would become a model community-driven initiative delivering on international principles of justice and accountability, how can we make peace and justice a reality to victims by forefronting the victims to drive the initiatives? That became a big picture, a big dream. We became like the center for research. We started getting partnerships. But now I started getting so many opportunities come and study in America, in Europe. So this kind of journey made me realize that hard work pays, but you shouldn't give up when it is just so difficult. Victor started reaching out to communities. He initially struggled to raise money. But after two years, he finally got funding for his organization. And he started embarking more on our work now to reach out to the communities, struggling to raise money still. It took us two years to get single funding. I did not give up. I'm one person who do not give up. I knew I was going to get it, but we just needed to work so hard. Even though you're doing good things, you need to still prove to people that you're human, you're doing something good, and something that you think they can appreciate. I did not give up. I kept on. With the cards that life has dealt him, Victor was not used to good news. And he especially did not expect the news he would get in 2015. I was actually in The Hague when I was attending the initial appearance of Dominic Nguyen, one of the ICC-indicted LRA commanders, when I got a call from American Friends Service Committee, and then they informed me that they wanted to talk to me, I spoke with them, and then they told me that, you know, we have a history, we have been nominated people like Archbishop Desmond Tutu, we nominated Martin Luther King, we nominated also Gandhi, although he did not win, but we nominated him, so, we have been tracking your work for the last four years in Uganda. Your work to support victims, your work to help the population heal, promote a culture of peace. And above all, you have a very strong model approach to how to make peace and justice a reality. So for that reason, our board has decided that we should nominate you for the Nobel Peace Prize together with your organization. And I asked them, I said, are you talking about me or which one are you talking about? At 33, Victor was the youngest African and the first Ugandan to be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Of course, there are plenty, thousands and tens of thousands of people have been nominated for Nobel around the world. But I was a bit unique because it gained more international news than <laughs> ordinary. No, it was not ordinary. It wasn't like, you know, it was a very big nomination. Yes, after years of sacrifices and dedication, because of his nomination, Victor and his organization earned global media recognition. But more than the spotlight, Victor says the most important part of the Nobel Peace Prize nomination was its healing power among the war victims. I heard people calling on the radio, on television, they were crying and saying, we, we grew up together with Ochen and the team, we saw them, how they're struggling every day. These kids really struggle. But 
we just wanted to say even though we have been subjected to too much suffering and pain and torture and death at least we are so happy that something good has still come out of northern uganda finally victor says that we often believe we don't have the power to drive change or that we have to go through severe pain in order to succeed so for all those other people that are trying hard because i think so many people mm-hmm. don't believe that they have the power yeah to drive that change and sometimes mm-hmm. they're so close to making that change happened what gave you the belief that as a young person you had a solution that was worth people investing into i think you brought a good point there's a problem that i find people say you have to labor you have to go through severe pain in order to succeed i think it's wrong to associate success with pain we are legitimizing human suffering by saying you must struggle painfully in order to become successful i think there is a reason there are means there are mechanisms to make change happen without suffering to create a societal change i think it will require a lot of getting back to our humanity who are we what do we stand for i think if we seek to pursue a future a life of dignity for everybody we need to know that it will come in from a very compassionate heart the heart that is willing to care i can only say that for those who are struggling to look for money to run your own initiatives people donate not because they have a lot people donate because they care don't appeal to people's wealth you have to appeal to people's hearts victor says each one of us has a responsibility to take care of each other no matter who you are no matter your color no matter your age young or old poor or rich there's a responsibility in our privileges and responsibilities in our misfortunes i found my responsibility in my misfortunes i was not privileged but i was able to find my responsibility within that but i think what is more important is using your resources for the good of humanity using your resources for the good of planet you should seek to make a legacy the legacy of not having amassed all the resources in this world but having transformed life life becomes much better if it impacts other lives today victor is a un goodwill ambassador for peace and justice he's received several awards and recognitions for his service to the poor and his inspirational leadership for peace in africa He's not only received the generous support of donors but has also gained their friendship. One of which is businessman and philanthropist Richard Branson. In March 2019, Victor visited Richard Branson's Necker Island for the Virgin Unite and Igniting Change gathering. In brief moments when Victor is not working on his initiatives, he's pursuing personal goals like learning how to swim. And who better to help Victor reach his small dream than Richard Branson himself, who happens to be fond of teaching people how to swim? It takes generations to heal the pains of war, and the road to reconciliation and justice is long. We hope that this episode inspired you to learn more about the urgency to rebuild trust and hope in Uganda and other post-conflict countries. Beyond Uganda, we hope Victor's story helped you see the power of young people in driving change and creating lasting peace. We'd love for you to join our global community for change and take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. 
Take the initiative to learn more about Uganda and ongoing reconciliation efforts that are taking place. Also consider supporting Victor's organization and helping raise awareness about his important work. Lastly, contribute your time, your voice, and your resources to support youth-led human rights and social justice efforts in your own community. Before we go, we'd like to thank our experts, Christoph Titeka and Sasha Lesnev, who joined us on this episode. Check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like our show, please rate us and leave us a review to encourage more people to tune in. You can also follow us on social media at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This season is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. While this podcast series is produced in collaboration with our partners, The Elders did not exercise any editorial discretion on this episode. Our executive producer is Camille Laurente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producers Diana Galbraith. And our research lead is Martina Vanat. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again on our next episode.